We are in Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open it to chapter 9. Um, and we're going to hit a few of these verses as we kind of walk through this. So coming out of Nehemiah chapter 8, the Israelites were in this, this time of celebration, of feasting and rejoicing before the Lord. In fact, there was a time when they started to weep and mourn for the things that they heard about, and they were told, stop, stop weeping, stop mourning. It's time to rejoice, and they did, okay? But following this time of feasting and rejoicing, the people began to gather together in repentance and fasting. See, there was so much to celebrate for. The walls had been completed. The, the gates and the doors were, were up. And the task was accomplished except for, you know, filling the city and building the houses. But the wall was finished. Come on. There was also a lot for them to repent for. Because of the, how they got to where they are needed repentance. We'll get there. See, we all love, and I, I know it's not just me, we love celebrating and feasting. I am so much more about feasting in the Lord than fasting in the Lord. Is anybody else with me? Like, fasting is not as fun as feasting. It's just the truth. I've had actually a few conversations about fasting over the last several weeks, and, you know, there's, there's, the, uh, there's those times when the Lord calls you to a fast, and you feel it, you feel drawn in there, and there's this just a special grace on your life to endure that fast. And then there's the times when you fast because it's also a spiritual discipline. It's not like you're feeling, okay, I'm really feeling the Lord on this. You're like, no, I, I need to fast because it's a discipline. The discipline is, of fasting is so much harder than the grace of fasting, right? Like I fasted on, like by grace for long stretches of time on very little food and it was difficult, but it wasn't like I'm going to die. This past Easter, I did the Daniel fast for like a couple weeks. I didn't think I was making it out. I thought that's it. Just, just, I'm going home. It was so difficult and I was not happy to be around. And I modified Daniel fast because the Lord has to write on the wall with his hand, his very hand. And it has to say fast coffee before that happens. So whenever the fast happens, whether it's Daniel or whatever, there is still coffee because Jesus sits on the throne. And I don't think he would ask me to do that. You know, we, we enjoy the celebrating. We enjoy the feasting. Especially, I believe, like in our Western culture and, and in, in America. We love the celebrating because the celebrating is the victorious side of things. It's the victorious view of things. We have a victorious view of the Lord and in our faith, which is good. But the thing with it is, when there are serious issues, when there are things that we have done wrong, when we have engaged in injustice and sin, we tend to skip right over that repentance part pretty quickly and really hit fast and hard the celebration. We don't spend all that much time in repentance. And we don't spend, we've, we've kind of lost, like I'll call it the art of repentance and the art of lamenting before the Lord. We need to reclaim the heartfelt repentance and learning what it means to repent for our sin and sit in that for a time. Sit in what happened, what we did, what those that did who came before us and to sit in that. And it's not that we stay in a place of mourning, of repenting, of lamenting, but we don't skip over it either. 
Powerful things happen when we sit in that place of repentance. Powerful things happen in us and through us and around us. There's transformation of heart. There's transformation of mind. As we weigh the consequences of sin and our actions in our lives and in our current context and in the world. God is the God of victory, amen? Right, he's the great victor. He never loses. I mean, we sing that. He has never lost a battle ever. God doesn't know how to lose. All he does is win. So we look to that. We keep our eyes on our great victor. But what we shouldn't do is jump right over repentance with a quick, hey, I'm sorry about that, and get right to the feasting. Because if we're just like, hey, I'm sorry about that, and we go straight to feasting, are we sorry that we got caught, or are we sorry that we did it? See, the victory that we experience, it came at a cost. It came at a price. It came at the expense of the very life and the blood of Jesus. And we can't ever forget that. Our forgiveness, our peace with God, it cost Jesus his life. And there's somber weight to that. And we, we, we need to feel that when we engage in sin and we're walking through repentance. We need to feel the weight of what we did. And not just at Easter and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. See, repentance, in a biblical sense, is turning from one thing or one direction to another. And so this, literally, this is what it means. You're walking this way, and repentance is stopping and turning around and going the absolute opposite direction. You were going this way, and you were doing that, and now you stop, and you go this way, and you do these things, which is the exact opposite of what you were just doing in the direction that you were just going. It's not like a minor adjustment. It's a complete and total transformation. And Nehemiah 9 records the repentance of the Israelites for their sin and for the sin of the people that came before them. See, they recognized that their current circumstances, their current situation was a result of sin. They were exiled. They were kicked out of their country because of the sin before God. They rejected God who brought them into the promised land and gave them all these great things. And he said, just serve me. And they rejected him and they took up and started serving the idols of all the nations around them and all the nations that they had forced out of that country, that promised land that God had given them. And because of that, God exiled them. And so now they're starting to come back to the promised land and things were in shambles and they are in shambles because of sin. And so they're now stepping back into right alignment with God. You know, when Josiah was, was said in, in, in worship, he said, I feel like there's, there's prophecy in the room. I felt like God had something for me. And so I opened, up, I opened up my Bible and I felt like it was in Psalms. And I opened up to where I was, I had it open when we were in the prayer room before uh, service and pre-service prayer. And then I, my eye caught a verse that I didn't see earlier. And it's in Psalms 101 and verse 2. And this is David writing, and he says, when will you come to me? And he's, he's speaking to the Lord. He says, when will you come? And I opened it, and, my, and I, I, my eyes fell on that, and then I felt God say to me, 
When will you come to me? See, because God's not the one who moved. We moved. And so when we're asking ourselves, God, when are you going to come? When am I going to feel your presence again? When are you going to fill me again? Am I going to have encounters and experiences with you? Where did you go? God's saying, I didn't go anywhere. When will you come to me? See, we are the ones that move. It's not God. God is always with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And this is what the Israelites are doing. They're coming back to the Lord. They're coming back into alignment with him. And I mean, I call them, you'll see on the next, on the slide that they, I call them like four steps that they walk through in their realignment with, with God. I wasn't really sure how to frame this. It's not really steps because it's not a formula. It's not a, it's not like if you do this, 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 and this, then everything's going to be good. But there's this process of alignment. And these are just maybe like not so much steps, but four for processes or, or keys to alignment. You know, like when you go to the chiropractor and he aligns your spine, he like twists and it crunch and it cracks and, and there might be, you know, off here on that side and off on this side and he just aligns things back up. These are four areas that we need to have in line so that we can be in alignment with God. And the first one is worship. In verses five and six, it says this. Then the Levite said, stand up. And bless, praise, and honor the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. May your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. And then Ezra said, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens. And with all their hosts, the heavenly bodies and angels, the earth and everything that is on it, the seas and everything that is in them, you give life to all of them. And the heavenly host is bowing down in worship to you. This whole process of realigning with God began with worship. And we worship because God is worthy. It's not about feeling the feelings of worship. It's about Jesus being worthy of our worship. See, we as a, as a culture and as a society, we value feelings. And I, it, it seems like there is, um, there's an increased uh, importance on the value of feelings. We're beginning to understand how important they are and the impact that things have on our feelings and on our mental health. And this is good, but we cannot allow this priority on our feelings to bleed into our worship because we don't worship because we feel like it. We worship because he is worthy. See, in Hebrew, in the original language that the Old Testament is written in, worship means to, to get low, to bow down, or to lie prostrate on the ground. Figuratively, it means to press or press down. And what it speaks to is it speaks to a position of the heart before it speaks to a position of the body. Because I can get low in my body and have my heart high and proud and arrogant before the Lord. And my body position is not as important as my heart position. See, worship is a thing of the heart. Right? We worship body, soul, and spirit. But it starts in the heart. Because if my body has hands lifted high and knees bowed low, but my heart isn't, I'm not really worshiping. I'm in a place of arrogance before the Lord and we need to come in a place low and humble before God. See, we worship first with our heart, our soul and spirit, and then our bodies follow. We position our hearts low with honor and adoration of Jesus. Without worship, 
we're just left with legalism. If we don't have true heartfelt worship, we come, we come here on Sundays and all we've got is rules. You can't do that. You can do this. You, you know, when you, when you leave here, these are the things that you can do and these are the things that you can't do. See, this is what the Pharisees were doing in the New Testament. They had a knowledge of the truth. They understood what God asked of them, but they didn't love him and they didn't worship him. They just followed the rules. We're not about following the rules. We're about following Jesus. That's like the only rule. So just follow Jesus. We'll get there, but let's not forget that this is how we know who he is. It's the word. We don't, it's not, again, back to how I feel. I feel like Jesus would be okay with me doing that. Really? Because I didn't find that in here. Because we can feel a whole lot of, anyway, that's coming. That's next. I'm sorry. Hold on. Knowing the truth of Jesus without love for Jesus doesn't bring life. And it doesn't bring peace and it doesn't bring alignment to your life. See, once the worshipful adoration of Jesus is lost, then dead religious legalism is all that we're left with. The Israelites first worship, and then they made declarations of truth. In, the, in this chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 9, there is so much truth about who God is, about how he views and interacts with us. And here's just a few of them. Verse 7 says, You are the Lord God. You, in verse 8, you are righteous and just. In verse 13, it says, you gave them, and they're speaking to the people who came before them, so their, their ancestors. You gave them fair ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Verse 17, it says, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not abandon them. Speaking of those who had abandoned him, but he did not abandon them. See, it's important to declare the truth of God. And I'm not, it's not, this is like capital T truth. They're not little t truth. Because what's perceived as truth in our culture is shifting. Absolute truth is being rejected for personal truth. And this is often referred to as my truth or your truth. And just because it's your truth doesn't mean that it's my truth. And just because it's my truth and your truth doesn't necessarily mean that it's capital T truth. Because it's my truth. It's what I feel. And you'll hear that a lot. If you listen, well, that's their truth and that's okay. Right? Or that's, you know, it, it might not line up with what, with what this says, but come on now, that's my truth. I believe my truth. Sometimes when you believe, believe, my truth or your truth, you're just simply deceived and you're believing a lie and not truth at all. And this cultural thought process is filtering its way into the Christian faith because people want to worship God as they choose to see Him. Not necessarily as He's revealed through the truth of Scripture. See, worship without truth makes one's own knowledge and experience of God the ultimate reality of God. And my experience and my knowledge of God is not the ultimate reality of God because this is his revealed truth to me. 
This is how I know who God is. This is how I know who Jesus is, what he thinks about me, how he treats me, how I'm to interact with him. It's in here. Without truth, our knowledge of God is just based on our experience. And so everyone has a different understanding of who God is because everybody's experience is different. So when we declare truth is revealed in Scripture, we remind ourselves of who He is, of what He has done. Because truth is objective. It's not subjective like our experiences are. You know, over the last 10 years or so, there's been a growing trend in Christianity called deconstructing faith. And if you float around on, on Twitter at all, you, you'll, see, um, you'll see a hashtag or people using the term exvangelical instead of evangelical. Exvangelical. And it's, it's used in the same way that you would say ex-boyfriend or, or ex-girlfriend or ex-husband, something like that. Right? It means that something, I used to have a relationship with, with that, but now I don't. Exvangelical. And these are people who have deconstructed their faith. The deconstruction of, of a person's faith is where they begin to question everything that they've been taught in church regarding Jesus, regarding sin, culture, salvation, eternity. They begin to question all of these things. And listen, there is nothing wrong with asking questions. You need to understand that. If you've got questions, ask questions. Ask hard questions. Ask difficult questions. Ask questions that I don't know the answers to. That's okay. Asking questions is not wrong. Ask lots of questions. But what's really important is where you accept your answer from. Right? Because if I just ask Joe Schmo on the corner all my, my, my questions about eternity, he can give me his opinion. And if I take Joe Schmo's opinion, how do I know that that even lines up with the truth of Scripture? We have to come back to the truth of Scripture. It is the highest Revelation of who God is to us. And if we do not hold to the truth of Scripture, we are on a slippery slope that ends with us serving a version of Jesus that looks very little like the Jesus of the Bible. We serve a Jesus who just wants to make me happy. There's no bad days. It's all good. Do whatever makes you happy. That's not sin. It's okay. Because Jesus is all love. I mean, in the end, we all know love wins, right? That's actually not true. In the end, Jesus wins. And what we call love isn't always love. Jesus wins. And God is love. So yes, love wins, but it's not always our definition of love. The Bible is truth. That's what we believe here. It is absolute truth. The Bible should define our lives and our lives should never define the Bible. I am all about supernatural encounters and experiences because I've had them and they have wrecked me and transformed me and connected me to the Holy Spirit in ways that I can't even communicate with words but all of these encounters and experiences that we value so much and we hunger for, they must line up with the truth of Scripture or they get rejected. If you have an experience that doesn't line up with the truth of Scripture, your experience is wrong. You don't reinterpret Scripture. 
So the Israelites made these declarations of truth about who God is, and they were followed by confessions of sin. Verse 26 says, Yet they, and again, speaking about their ancestors, were disobedient and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who warned them to return to you, and they committed great and contemptible blasphemies. Verse 29 says, And you admonished them and warned them to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and arrogantly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, which by keeping a man will live. But they turned a stubborn shoulder. They stiffened their neck and they would not listen. Yet you were patient with them for many years. Verse 30. And admonished them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Still they would not listen. The Israelites are confessing the sins of the generations before them. It's a public confession of sin. The sin that got them to where they found themselves that day. Exiled, oppressed, in bondage to another nation. Now is not the time in Nehemiah 9. It was not the time to pretend like everything was okay. Okay. It was not okay. They were struggling. Yes, they may have rebuilt the wall and and they had safety and security in Jerusalem, but they were not free people. So they were walking through repentance, reconciliation with God, and confessing of sin is a key part of this process of realignment and aligning ourselves back with God. See, sin literally means to miss the mark. And the mark... The mark is perfection. And so whenever we miss perfection, it's called sin. And there are consequences for sin. Spiritually, the consequences of sin, if we never accept Jesus, we never receive him as our savior, we never receive his forgiveness, and we reject everything that he's done for us, then the consequence is eternal separation from God in hell. It is appointed once for man to die and then judgment. We will all stand before God, not as a group, not as a family, not as a husband and a wife, but we stand before him one day alone. And we will be judged. If we don't know Jesus, that judgment is not going well. But there's also natural and spiritual consequences for those that accept Jesus but continue to walk in areas of sin. And this is what the Israelites were experiencing. So we don't like to admit it, but there are times that the difficulties we find ourselves in are the result of the sin in our lives. I mean, no one likes to admit that. I'm going through a hard time. Everything's crumbling down around me. And, you know, no one wants to be like, I'm living in sin. This is my fault. I mean, I can't tell you if I have ever heard that from anybody. Usually it's like, why is this happening to me? It's difficult to look inward and be like, oh, it's because of this that God calls sin, where I've missed the mark and I have just continued to engage in it instead of rejecting that and repenting. But here's the good news. It doesn't have to be this way and it doesn't have to stay this way, right? First John chapter one and verse nine, John writes, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confessing our sin 
keeps our hearts tender towards Jesus. It keeps us in a place of humility. It keeps us in a place of gratitude. And it keeps us in a place of adoration of Jesus. But when we stop confessing the sin in our lives, we kind of get like arrogant and proud. And look at the way that I live my life. And look at the blessing that I have on my life. And look at all these great things that I have. Would, you know, if I was living in sin, would God give me all of this? But when we confess our sin, that stinky attitude that we have, that pride that we have, right? The motive and the motivations of our heart. I mean, I'm going into like the thoughts, the things that we think. I'm not even talking about the things that we, we do on the outside that everybody can see. Because listen, you can do everything right on the outside and follow all the rules, so to speak. But you could be so arrogant and full of yourself with bad motives. And no one will ever know. Jesus knows. And just because you can't see it on the outside doesn't mean that it's not sin. Right? And so when we confess these things... It keeps us in a place of humility, low before the Lord. You always, always want to humble yourself before the Lord because if you don't, he will humble you. Confession of sin without truth and without worship is dead religion. There's no relationship in confession alone. We need the truth of who Jesus is and the worship of him to have that realigned, reconciled relationship with Jesus. In John chapter 16, like verses 8 through 10, Jesus is talking about sending the Holy Spirit when he, when he goes to the Father. And one of the things that he says that the Holy Spirit will do is convict us towards righteousness, towards personal integrity, towards godly character. Holy Spirit will come along in your life and he will put his finger on areas of your life and he will say, Son... Or he will say, daughter, this thing is not pleasing to me. This thing will kill you if you do not repent, if you do not turn the other way. This belief, this attitude, this motive. And our response to the conviction, this is not guilt. This is the conviction needs to be confession that comes from a humble and tender heart. Right? David wrote in the Psalms, and this is one of my favorite prayers to pray. Search me. And know me and see if there is any wicked way in me. You are inviting God. You are inviting Holy Spirit into all those areas of your life. Those secret areas that you don't want to admit or in your heart and in the, in the recesses of your mind. You're inviting him in and say, search that out. Put your finger on something that is not holy. That is not righteous. That doesn't look like you. Search me. Know me. The final thing that the Israelites did was ask. This is the last thing that they did. Verse 32, it says, Now therefore, our God, the great and mighty and the awesome God, who keeps the covenant and loving kindness, do not let all this hardship seem insignificant before you. So they worshiped, they declared truth, they confessed their sin, and they simply looked to heaven and said, God, do not let all of our hardships seem insignificant to you. They're saying, remember us. Look upon our situation with grace and mercy and deliver us. Bring us all back to the place of peace, of safety, of security, of blessing, of realignment in relationship with you. 
But this isn't what they led with. This isn't what they opened their, their realignment with. This was the last thing that they did. It was only after worshiping, declaring truth, confessing sin that they asked God to deliver them from the results of their sin. As, as individuals and as a church family, we need to do this. We need to worship Jesus from the heart. We need to declare the truth of Jesus from the scripture. We need to confess our sin to Jesus and then ask him to meet our needs and deliver us from all the results of the sin and the things that we've done in our lives. We can't ever get so arrogant that we look at the situation that we find ourselves in and say, I'm here because of what this person or that person or that group of people did to me. And not have the place of humility to be like, I didn't do that well. I was wrong. I was arrogant. I was mean. I was unforgiving. I was judgmental. I was envious. I was controlling. I was manipulating. You know, the, the old... You know when you do this, the old saying is you point one finger out and three fingers back. As individuals and as a church family, we need to you know, metaphorically stand in front of the mirror and ask God, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. You're not going to get to where God wants you to go if you have sin in your life that you refuse to repent of. Church family, if we do things as a church family that are not pleasing to the Lord and we continue to walk in those things and we don't repent and change and do things differently, this church will cease to exist. It won't be here any longer. It's not like, I think that's just the gravity, the reality of life, of, of, of God's dealings with us. If we are an un healthy church family, a bad representation of who he is, he's not just going to continue to bless that and grow this and increase our influence. We will shrink. Our influence will shrink. Everybody will be gone and there will be nobody left. And we will close the doors and sell the building to somebody else. It happens. I don't want that to happen to this family. I don't want that to happen to Crosspoint because I do not believe that that is our redemptive destiny. That's not the preferred prophetic future that God has for us to close the doors and everybody go to other churches. That is not what God has for us. We are to be a healthy, humble expression of the kingdom of God. Launching people out into their destinies to pursue their dreams and to influence the culture and bring change everywhere around them. We are to be something significant for La Mesa, for East County, for San Diego, in California, and around the world. we got to get our stuff right. We will be humble before the Lord. Jesus said, no, I'm going to close with this, in Matthew 6, 32 to 33. 
It says, he said, the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And he was talking about material things in the verses before. He says, but do not worry, for your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So he's saying, hey, your Father in heaven knows everything that you need. He knows your list. He knows. Verse 33 says, but first and most importantly, seek, aim, and strive after his kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing and being right, the attitude and the character of God, and all of these things, all of the material things of life will be given to you also. Prioritize seeking over asking. Prioritize seeking him over asking for stuff. If all you ever do in your prayer time is seek him, it's okay. We don't always have to come with this long laundry list of stuff that we need. He already knows. So eyes on Jesus. Eyes on Jesus. Always. Morning to night. Night to morning. Eyes on Jesus. Because he knows what I need even before I know what I need. And I don't need to inform him of my needs. Because he already knows. So the priority is seeking him in his kingdom before us talking about what we need. So these four areas that we need to bring correction to and implement so that we can have alignment with God and we can walk through the repentance process properly. And all these things, they apply to our personal lives. They apply to our church family life. They also apply to our society and our culture and those things that, that we know that we have in our cities and in, 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 a, in, in, in our country that we're wrong and we're historically wrong, all these same things apply. We need to walk through repentance on all of these things and feel the weight of what we did and what our ancestors did. And then we need to go in the opposite direction. Worship Jesus. Declare the truth of Jesus. Confess your sin to Jesus. And then ask Jesus to meet your needs. Close your eyes. All of this comes out of a relationship with Jesus. That's where you've said, Jesus, I give up and I surrender. And I want you in my life. You are king and God and I am not. And I receive everything that you've done for me. Right? Jesus lived a perfect life. He gave his life on the cross. He died a criminal's death even though he did nothing wrong. And that was in place of us. That was in substitution of us. And if we accept it, we receive Jesus' perfection and he takes on all of our sin and imperfection. But only if we surrender and we serve him and him alone. And so if you're here today and one, you've never done that. You've never said, Jesus, I serve you. You are God and my king. My God and my king. Or, if there was a time in your life and you said that, but you know in your heart that you rejected it and walked away from him, he may not have left you, but you left him. I just simply want you just to raise your hand. You're saying, yeah, that's me. I want that relationship with Jesus that I've never had before. Or I walked away. And Jesus, I'm coming home. I'll just wait for a moment. I'm not going to presume to know everyone's heart condition.
you know, maybe you're watching on the live stream. You can just throw a little hand emoji up if that's you and be like, yeah, that, that's me. Just to identify yourself. We have people on the live stream that will pray with you and pray for you. Holy Spirit, as the pastor of this house, of this family, I ask that you would come, that you would search us, and that you would know us. See if there be any wicked way in us. And that you would correct us and discipline us and bring us into alignment with you. And that's speaking as a church family. Just, we're just not going to rush through the moment, but individually, if that's your prayer, the cry of your heart, I just want you to put your hands out in front of you. And with your own words, whether in your, your mind or out loud, just say that. God, search me. Know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. I invite you in to every space, every hidden area every dark place in my life. And we just wait and pause and allow him to speak. There was a prophetic word sent to me during the end of worship. This person said that they felt like there are people here this morning who are holding on to hurts and they need to let them go and forgive those who have hurt them in order to receive the blessing and the things that God has for them. This is part of that search me and know me. You may not even realize that you've got unforgiveness in your life or you've got a fence where you've picked up an offense on your behalf or on someone else's behalf. It wasn't even anything that happened to you, but you watched something happen and you're offended for them. So you allow Holy Spirit to speak to you. God's got something for you. In order to receive, we've got to come back into alignment. Just confess those things. Father, we don't want to miss out on anything that you have for us. We want, we want it all. We want all of you in every part of us. In Jesus' name, amen.